So if you are just now joining us this morning, uh, we are in the middle of our, well, we're not actually in the middle, we're actually at the very end of our Advent series. Uh, it's almost Christmas. Uh, where we have been exploring Romans 5. Romans 5, where when we think of Christmas, uh, we typically don't think of Romans 5 as kind of where we might find like the meaning of Christmas, the purpose of Christmas, the heart behind Christmas, the hope of Christmas. Uh, but tucked in the middle of Romans chapter 5 is Paul's real heart for uh, like the hope of Christmas, like why Christmas happened, why we have hope in Christmas. And so what we've been doing over the Advent series as we've been exploring Romans chapter 5 and all that Paul lays out for what is the hope of Jesus. Uh, so this morning we're going to be talking about something uh, in particular that is um, I think one of those things that we've heard a lot in church but may not necessarily understand and that is God's righteousness and his justification of us. Okay, so, so these two terms, when I, if I were to ask you, like, hey, what does it mean when I say God is righteous? What does that mean? Like, how would you respond? What is God's righteousness? More, more so, if I were to say God has justified you because of his righteousness, what does that mean? So most of us have probably heard these words at one point or another in church, and what we're going to do this morning is we're actually going to explore how we are justified through God's righteous act, as Paul will call, say here in Romans 5, which he refers to as the birth of Jesus. God's righteous act in Jesus, the birth and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, has justified us. Okay, so um, I, I want to just preface this and say... the. Theologically, whenever we jump into some of Paul's words, particularly in Romans, uh, they can be intimidating, right? It can be, it can be theologically complex and dense. Uh, sometimes Paul will say the same thing, but he'll say it over and over and over again. Uh, and so it takes a little bit of time to really process through what he's saying. So when we jump into Paul, uh, what I want to say here is everybody take a deep breath. Some of you actually did that. Uh, I feel like a yoga instructor right now. Uh, take a deep breath. We're going to jump into Romans 5. It's going to feel intimidating, but if we'll look at it, uh, what I'm hopeful what we'll do, be able to do this morning is see some real hope uh, in Paul's words. Uh, so I'm going to start in verse 18, uh, and we'll jump in this morning. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man will the many be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more so that just as sin reigned in death so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through jesus christ our lord let me pray for us and we'll get started this morning well father as we explore uh, your word for us in romans 5 um, would you be with us would you uh, give us insight would you give us clarity uh, but more than anything, Father, would you have mercy on us? Um, we desperately need you. Um, Father, we need your righteousness. 
this morning as we explore this, um, would you give us some real sense of hope, some sense of joy and peace that we are being made right because of the power of your love for us embodied in Jesus. We pray all of these things in your name. Amen. Uh, so as I mentioned, we're going to look at some terms that will feel uh, pretty churchy. We've heard them a lot, uh, particularly these words righteousness and justification, which Paul will use here. Um, but what I want to do is invite us to reconsider uh, maybe some of the things that we think we understand when we think of God's righteousness and maybe some of the things that we think we think we know about the word justification because both of these words in English end up having very different meanings than Paul actually had used them in this, in this text here. Uh, so starting in verse 18, Paul will say, just as one trespass resulted in the condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. So what Paul's talking about here, and we covered this last week, is the sin of Adam. So what he's saying is when Adam rebelled against God, sin entered into humanity's scene. And God's, God's resolve towards sin, God's condemnation of sin, was death. Right? So when Adam and Eve eat of the fruit, what does God tell them? If you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. Okay, so, so why this is important for us to understand is I actually think that many of us misunderstand God's, both God's judgment uh, and his condemnation or discipline of us in our life. Okay, so when we talk about God's judgment or God's condemnation, we rest assured that that, that fullness happened in Adam. God has condemned sin in Adam. This is what Paul is saying here. So what does that actually mean? Death is... In, sense, in a sense, God's temporary solution to sin. It is, in a sense, the way that God actually cuts humanity off from their sin. Okay, so uh, no analogy is perfect here, okay? No analogy is perfect. I get that. But let me, let me try to help us understand what, what's happening here. So, I don't know, you're out with your friends at a bar, I don't know, something, uh, and you've got, like, that one guy in the group, like, he just goes really hard that night, right? Like, and he's, like, nine or ten shots in, and then at some point, you, or maybe the bartender, might say what? You're cut off, right? When you say that, right, you're cut off, what are you doing? Because if I don't, you're either going to pass out, or you're going to get in a fight and get knocked out. Maybe that's just my friends. Uh, right, or you're going to drive. None of those are good solutions here. Like, the decisions you're making are going to lead to damage. So in essence, I have to cut you off so that further damage does not occur in your life. So in that cutting off, you're actually also being merciful. You're being responsible. You're taking care of this person. So sin works similarly. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, sin entered into the world. When that happened, humanity became hopelessly and entirely, completely enslaved to both sin and death. So every single one of us has a bad habit. Some part of our character, some part of us that, if it were allowed to go unchecked for all of eternity, would ruin our souls. Okay, so most of us know, like, a grumpy elderly person, right? Maybe it's like, your grandfather or some of you are like, that's me, actually. I'm 
I'm already on my way there, uh, right? But like if you've ever known someone that's kind of like older along in years who's also kind of gets set in their ways, right? We call that, we we'll say they're set in their ways, right? It's just every Thanksgiving, grandpa's going to say that. He's just set in his ways, right? They're kind of like making excuses for it. And at the same time, right, being set in your ways kind of leads to grandpa not being very easy to be around, right? Difficult. So imagine if that were allowed to go on for eternity. Eventually, at some point, sin would actually, like, this being set in your ways would lead you to a place of being, your humanity being unrecognizable. This is what sin does to humanity. Each one of us, we are hopelessly and completely enslaved to our selfishness. We are self-absorbed in ways that we don't even realize that we are. And if that self-absorption is allowed to continue for all of eternity, it will ruin your soul. It will make you unable to connect with others, unable to receive love, unable to be loving towards one another. Like, it will ruin you. So God's solution to sin is to cut off, right, this, this cutting off in death ensures that you will never truly be set in your ways. Those parts of you that are sinful will never also, this is God's way of saying, like his temporary solution, I'm using my words carefully this morning, temporary solution of cutting off humanity is to ensure, like by, through death, by condemning sin in death, he condemns sin to die. This is the picture that Paul's painting for us in Romans 5 that I want us to grab here. The reason I want to spend a little bit of time on this idea is when you look at the world, right? So modern people, as modern people, we don't like, we don't like a lot of this language. Sin, condemnation, God's judgment, right? It's too harsh. Like, didn't we get rid of that? Like, isn't that a little bit like medieval? Uh, and I, I want to argue this, right? So if our response is, this sounds really harsh and I don't like it, um, one, it may be that we've actually not quite understood it. One. Uh, two, I think some of that is we actually haven't grasped the gravity of humanity's fallenness. God cannot allow a world where the Holocaust exists to live on forever. He can't allow a world where there's racism and injustice and brokenness and bigotry and exclusion. He cannot bless that with eternal life. This is why when he tells Adam and Eve in the garden, if you eat of the fruit of good of evil, you will surely die. What we then sometimes struggle to realize, and what Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, is that these powers of the world is what Paul's referring, he calls them powers of the world, right? So every government, every bank, every branch of government, every political viewpoint, liberal, conservative, every university, every power of the world has been corrupted by sin. And we have been engrossed in that. Paul used the word, we have been engrossed in this. We are participating in this. Whether we realize it or not, like our selfishness has created a world in which sin thrives. And each and every single one of us has also participated in this. Okay, the other reason I want to spend a little bit of time on this uh, is because I'm prayerful and hopeful that this will free us from some of the way that we understand God's judgment and condemnation incorrectly. So I, I mentioned last week, and this is, this is true, this is one of the most common pastoral conversations I have with people is they experience something painful in their life. 
They get bad news medically of something. Or they lose a job or their child suffers in some kind of way. And what they want to do is they want to meet with me and they want to ask, what is God punishing me for? I've literally had people sit down after devastating medical diagnosis and say, here's all the shameful things I've done in the past five years. Which one of the ones is you think the one that God is getting me for here? Like, what is he spiting me for? What I want to provide clarification for in Paul's text and hope for us is to understand is that is not how God's condemnation works. He does not say, when Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the fruit of good and evil, uh, you will surely die, and then also I'm going to follow you around the rest of your life and spite you and withhold blessings when you continue to step out of line. God's condemnation of death occurred, and this is what Paul is saying here, occurred in its fullness in Adam. This frees us from the fear and the anxiety of, if I step out of line, is God going to punish me? If something is happening in my life that is painful, if I've got something that was uncertain that I didn't see before, is God punishing me in some kind of way? God's condemnation does not work like that. There's an inaccurate understanding, I believe, of God's condemnation as Paul is laying it out for us here in Romans 5. And so why I wanted to spend a little bit of time on this this morning in this first part here uh, when Paul says, consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, I want to spend a little bit of time here, and this is one of the things I prayed about so hard for us as a church this, this week, is that we would be able to finally free ourselves from this, the anxiety and the fear that God wants to further punish us for our sin, and that he does it by withholding blessings in some kind of way, or sending devastating medical diagnoses in some kind of way, or, right, like withholding good things from us because he's displeased with us. This is not how God's condemnation works. This isn't the argument that Paul lays out in Romans 5. And so my prayer in my heart for us just as a pastor is that we could really hear this and see this as God as actually, like, I want us to find some freedom. So I remember uh, in high school, I never, I never understood this. Uh, and would always, uh, like, if I, if I did something and I'm 16, so I'm always doing something that I don't think God approves of, uh, like I was just, I remember like I, one time I was, I was dating a girl and I was like, oh, what is she, is she going to break up with me now? Like I was literally praying like, God, please don't let her break up with me. I'm really glad that, uh, that actually ended because I met my wife later and that all worked out really well. Right. But like getting wrapped into this idea of what is God going to punish me for when I step out of line ends up creating paranoia in us and it creates anxiety. And as we get older, those conversations get more serious and they're not about our high school crushes anymore. They're like, where did this cancer come from? I just, uh, where is this infertility coming from? Is God, right? One of the questions I often hear is why me? What happened? What did I do in order to be deserve this or receive this? What I want you to hear this morning is nothing. God does not condemn or discipline sin in this way. This is not the argument that Paul's laying out here in Romans 5. It's not how he operates or treats sin. He's cut it off, right? Go back, going back to the analogy of cutting off our friend, right? Like, I'm limiting the damage that sin can do in your life. And this is why even here, in God's condemnation, we actually see his mercy. It's even here we see his love for humanity. There is something deeply inside humanity now that's poisoning you, your own self-absorption, and God says, I will not allow that to have the last word in your life. 
I won't allow your, your fears, your woundedness, your insecurities, all the things that you hang on to, you can rest assured someday that I will cut those off. This is God's solution to sin, condemnation and death. But even here, I want us to find God's mercy and be able to see that God in his love is actually creating wholeness, uh, even in the way that he condemns sin and death. Uh, so uh, starting in, um, let's start in verse, uh, let's go to 19. For justice through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made righteous. Uh, just, uh, I'm sorry, uh, just through the obedience of one man, many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. Okay, consequently, he says, verse 18, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. Okay, so this righteous act. So when I, I asked you in the beginning, uh, when, I, when I tell you, or, or, or some of you say, like, God's a righteous God, what does that mean? Is it like he watches less R-rated movies than you do? Right? Like, does he get angry less than you do? Does he make less mistakes than you do? Right? Like, what does it mean when we say God's a righteous God? In English, righteousness has a, has a connotation of morality to it. So we tend to think of a righteous person as someone who, right, like, dots all their I's and crosses all their T's and ties their shoes and whatever else, right? Like, whatever, like, our standard of morality is, we tend to think of righteousness as as not doing bad things, right? A righteous person, we might say, is someone who does lots of good things. But Paul's using this word righteousness and also this word justification uh, very, very differently. Um, so one of the things that I want us to uh, actually hold on to here is uh, when we think of God's righteousness as sort of this abstract, like, moral, like, standard of moral behavior, like, that's not good news. That's not the gospel. God being a righteous God that has this standard of behavior in which you can never obtain isn't good news for you. And Paul's actually going to, he's going he's gonna to walk us through why. He's going to do this by contrasting God's righteousness with the law. So hold that thought for just a second. But just saying that God's righteousness is this, like, abstract divine sort of moral standard of behavior that's sort of up there that we will never actually live up to is not good news. And this is why, because Paul is not using the word righteousness here to describe an actual attribute of God. What he's actually using the word righteousness for is to describe the power of God. What Paul is saying is God's righteousness is his power to set all things right. So that word justification, when he says you have been justified, okay, we tend to think of the word justified um, and, and sort of a legal standing. Right? If you're on trial and you're pronounced innocent or guilty, right, like we use that word justice, all of that is connected there. But in the Greek, all of these words, righteousness, justification, and justice, all imply action. They imply power. And so when Paul says uh, it is a righteous act that resulted in the justification and life for all people, what he's really saying is God's power, the power of God's love in Jesus, embodied in Jesus, resulted in all people being set right. So that word justification, a better translation in the Greek is actually rectification. 
Rectification is to set right what has been wrong, right? To, to like course correct, right? You're headed for, you're supposed to be going north, but you're going south. Like it is a, it is a redirecting in the right direction. And so what Paul is really getting at here is he says, you have been justified is what he's saying is God is setting right in you what has been wrong. He's setting, he's recourse correcting the parts of your heart that are on a path towards self-destruction through sin. So we, why we tend to sometimes hear this word, I'm justified now, we, we tend to use it as a legal status. And I'm afraid that we've actually diminished some of the power and the beauty of what Paul's saying here and what God has done for us. Uh, so uh, when, when we think of justification, right? So some of you, you grew up in homes where you had to justify your existence. And the weight was crushing. Right? You had to demonstrate your value. Right? Before you were able to receive love, you had to demonstrate or show that you were right, the right kind of person for your parents, for siblings, for a teacher. Right? As we grow older, most of us have to justify our existence in some way or another. I think this is actually a big fear that all of us carry. I have, to, I have to demonstrate my worth and my value as a father, as a mother, as a spouse, as a provider, as an employee, as a boss. Most of us spend our entire lives wondering whether or not our existence is justified based on what we produce. This is not good news. Many of us have actually been crushed under the weight of this, right? And we've been, what, what's happened is we've been given this message of, you don't matter until you can justify your existence in some way. You don't matter until you've produced enough to justify. And the expectations that we receive from spouses or parents or the ones that we put on ourselves can end up being very crushing. And so it's very easy to read Paul's words here uh, and to think that uh, when Paul says, you are now justified, that like you now matter because you've been justified. But what Paul is saying is because you mattered so much, God has begun to justify you. And we can translate that word justify as rectify. Because you mattered to God, he is rectifying you. He didn't justify you and then you matter. It's because you matter to him. Because you were hopelessly entrapped in your sin because you're hopelessly entrapped in your own selfishness and your own self-absorption, because of this, God is rectifying you. Because you matter to him, because he loves you, he's rectifying you. He's setting right the parts of our own hearts uh, that end up being destructive for us. So, so why this is so important, why I want us to grab this this morning, is because the words that Paul will say next I think, are entirely radical and counterintuitive, okay? They are uh, so radical that, like, it's going to feel unfair. Like, when I say what I'm going to say, I anticipate uh, us feeling like that doesn't, that doesn't make sense. It's not logical. That's not fair. That's not right. Grace is not fair. I just want to say this right now. Like, what Paul's going to do next is he's going to talk about a paradox, and if it makes perfect sense to you, I think it's because you quite haven't grasped it yet. Because it still doesn't, like, people work their entire lives, you will spend your entire life working out what Paul says next about grace. 
But starting in verse 20, Paul says this. The law, he's referring to the law of the Old Testament, so the laws in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. There's over 600 of them. They were given by God to his people. He says the law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin is increased, grace is increased all the more. So that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through the righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Okay, so he says the law brought in so that the trespass might increase. Let's stop and just, let's hang with this one for just a second. When Paul refers to the law, he's referring, like I said, to the Old Testament walls. Um, but what Paul says next is, is counterintuitive to us. He says, when we had these religious, when we had this religious moral standard, all it did was actually increase the sin. It increased the trespass. It increased the guilt. You see what Paul's saying here? God gave his perfect holy standard, right? So I want to go back to we tend to understand righteousness as a standard of moral behavior. Paul's just saying, here's a standard moral of behavior, and instead of it producing intimacy and holy communion with God and love and the fruit of his spirit, it produced further trespass and guilt. So what Paul's doing here is he is contrasting what he's just said, the law, with God's righteousness. He's gonna, these two things are operating differently. So the morality of the religious laws, Paul will say, only actually increased our hopelessness. It increased our guilt, and it never actually produced justification, never actually set us right. It only spotlights the sin more. Okay, this is why uh, I'm afraid so many of us misunderstand God's righteousness here. Because many of us live with a sense of, when I have a relationship with God, my guilt seems to increase. Right, The weight of, I know I'm never going to measure up to his standard behavior, increases. Here's what's happened, is that we've begun to transpose like how the law works onto God's righteousness and the way that he relates to us. And what Paul's trying to do right now is separate them. He's trying to contrast them and then separate them and then get us to go down one path and not the other. This is what he's doing here. So uh, when he says the law was brought in so the trespass might increase, but where sin increased, grace increased all the more. What Paul's getting at here is uh, when you sin, when you fail, which you will, this is precisely where God meets you. Sin, and again, I'm going to say some things that are, I know I'm, like, I'm pushing us a little bit theologically this morning, but I really want us to wrestle with this. Sin actually becomes the door in which we meet God. Where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. He's not giving us a, like a helpful religious motif to like make us feel better when we screw up. He's like, well, you know, God's got your back. What he is saying is in your brokenness, in your sinfulness, like in your inadequacies, in your inability to actually produce good, this is where you find God working. His righteousness, the, which I will define for us this morning as the power of God's love to set things right. This is what righteousness is. When we say we, we worship a righteous God, we worship a God who has power in love to set right what is wrong. So when Paul says sin abounds, grace abounds even more, 
He's not being metaphorical or allegorical or whatever other kind of analogy. Like, he's not just, like, throwing out religious motifs that make us feel better. What he's actually proposing is a radical new system in which our failures, our inadequacies, our, our woundedness, our insecurities, our humanness is exactly where God meets us with power. So there's some bad theology going around that God can't be around us because of our sin. Uh, Believe it or not, Christmas actually defies that in so many different ways, right? One being that Jesus was born of a sinful woman, raised by sinful parents, like in a sinful culture. And if we believe that Jesus was fully God, which we affirm at Restore, Jesus was fully God, right, both fully human and fully God. If he was fully God, which you have to affirm in order to be a Christian, right, like Nicene Creed, like you have to affirm this, then you cannot say that God cannot be around sin. What you actually begin to realize is God actually touches sin. He comes close to sin. And his righteousness, which is his power to heal sin, as demonstrated through Jesus, is seen here. So when Paul says, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, what he's saying is when God gave the law to his people, all it did was increase their guilt and their trespass. They were unable to measure up to any kind of standard. They were unable to actually produce any kind of heart change. But God in his power, this is righteousness, God's power in love to transform humanness means that it is precisely in our weakness that we encounter God. It is precisely in our sinfulness that we meet God. Here's what this means us this morning, and I want to challenge us with this. This means that every part of your life that you hide from others, because you want other people to see, every secret little addiction that you have, even your faithlessness, I said that, I'll say that again, even your faithlessness becomes space for the power of God and his love for you to begin to set things right. This means that the areas of your life that you feel most defeated by and most defeated in and most wounded in are precisely the areas where God's love is working most powerfully. This is exactly and precisely the spaces in which we expect to see God and meet him and then hear know him. So in Romans, in a lot of Paul's letters, it's not uncommon for him to use grace and faith is a synonym for Jesus. And so this isn't exactly what the text says, but I don't think it's an unfaithful interpretation of the text. You could say where sin abounds, Jesus abounds even more. Where the parts of our life that we are most ashamed of abound, God's love for you abounds even more. This is counterintuitive. It's paradoxical. It doesn't make sense. And you're like, that doesn't, so should I go on sinning? Paul will address that later. Uh, no, of course you don't go on. Like, so like sin brings God into my life. That, that's not what Paul's saying. He says if you, if, you hit, if you go that far, you've missed it altogether. But what he is saying is it's precisely the areas in which you think that God disapproves of and doesn't want to be around or has rejected you for are precisely the areas in which he is showing you his radically, beautifully, inclusive love for you. The spaces where you are most broken are the spaces where he is most active and working. If we'll really let this sink in, 
I think this will really free us. Where sin abounded, grace abounded even more. Um, I think most of us think where our sin abounds, God most disapproves. And that's not what Paul says. That's what the law does. And Paul's contrasting these two. He's contrasting the, the law with God's righteousness here. He wants us to not, he wants us to start separating them. So most of us, I think, use God's righteousness uh, the way that the law works. We see God's righteousness as the standard at which we cannot obtain and at which, like, magnifies our guilt. But this is exactly what the law did, and Paul says God's righteousness does something entirely different. This is God's power in his love for you embodied in Jesus to set right all that has gone wrong. So this will take us an entire lifetime to learn. Like I, I remember, uh, you know, um, believe it or not, I also struggle with all kinds of sins. I don't know if you guys knew that or not. Uh, but I remember uh, when I became a pastor, my mentor uh, told me something that at the time was, was his views on, on radical grace and love, and it was really hard for me to accept, and it's taken me a long time to really understand. But he said never, like if you are struggling with something and your, your church is struggling, never assume that it's because God's punishing you for something. God's grace is too radical for that. It's too loving and it's too encompassing. So he didn't say, like, so don't go on, like, making all kinds of mistakes. Don't do that. But if you get into the position where you begin to see the outcome of your church based on your own standard of righteousness, you'll spend your life burdening yourself in a way that will ultimately be too heavy for you to carry. I think all of us do this we tend to think that the outcomes of our life are based on how well we've been doing. And what Paul is doing is he's actually radically detaching these things. How God moves and works in your life is now actually no longer dependent on anything you do right or wrong. And if anything, where you are wrong is where God is most powerful. And he's wanting us to not, what he's wanting to do is he's wanting us to not mix God's righteousness with the law, which we tend to do. We tend to see these two things as the same. And Paul's wanting us to have a radical departure from this. This is why Paul says uh, in 2 Corinthians, and hopefully we can hear these words a little bit different in light of what he's written here in Romans. Why? For Christ's sake, I delight in weakness. This is why Paul's saying, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardship, in persecution, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. What Paul is saying is it's actually the things that I can't get right that actually make me most acceptable to God now because that's precisely where he is working. When I use the word acceptable to God, I mean what he's doing is the, his righteousness, right? Paul uh, will also say in Corinthians, uh, uh, sorry, Nick, we'll have to go back one for this one, but where, where uh, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, we are becoming the righteousness of God. What he's not saying is you guys are now becoming really moral people. What he's saying is you are now becoming like God's power in his love for the world. You are now becoming this. This power in love, you are be God is creating this in you based on how weak you are. So, so the word uh, in Hebrew, righteousness, has a relational connotation to it. So I said earlier in our Thessalonian series that Sin is relational, 
Uh, what makes sin sin is not because God's like, this is really bad, you shouldn't do it. It's because this is, hurts someone or it hurts you in some kind of way. It hurts my relationship with you, right, us and God, or it hurts your relationship with someone else, or it hurts the relationship you have with yourself. It's destructive for you, it's destructive for someone else, or it damages the way that you relate to me. This is what sin is. Likewise, God's righteousness is relational. We become a a righteous people when we learn to love the way that God loves. When we become the power of his love to set things right. And friends, love is the way. It is the most powerful force in the world. God is love. To know love is to know God. This is John. And so when I want us to be a righteous church, uh, and I say this with nuance, but not much nuance, that means we are a sinful church. Because where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. It means we're a needy church. Means we're a vulnerable church. Means we're a weak church. Right? So one of the ways that we pick leaders around here is we don't look at, hey, how uh, impressive is your resume? It's how vulnerable are you able to be? How comfortable are you with being weak? Right? This is this is where we actually find the love of God. This is why most of us have been burdened with. Uh, so much of the standards that religious moral behavior puts on us. This is why so much of it, so many of us spend our whole lives trying to justify our existence. Because we're so used to, if I produce, I produce, I've got to produce something good in order to be accepted and loved. And what Paul is saying is he's completely flipped the script here. Where sin abound, grace abounds even more. Where you are most unlovable is precisely where you are being loved the most. If you could really get this, how free would it free you? How, how free would you be? If we really understood that where we feel most unacceptable to God and to others is precisely where he's working the, the most. How would that change the way that we relate to others? How would it change the way that we relate to the world? What kind of fears could we let go of? <laughs> right? What kind of burdens of, if I, what if I don't measure up? What if I don't belong? What if I'm not accepted? What if I don't produce? If we found ourselves truly free of this, knowing that we were radically and completely loved in God's grace for us, what kind of life could we actually live? We could go with Paul and say, it's in my weakness that I'm actually strong. It would mean that we get, we would be freed from the way that our guilt tosses us to and fro and our shame speaks worth and value into us. This is what Paul's driving at here this morning. Then Paul finishes with something even more radical. He says, just as sin reigned in death. He's using this word reign can also be lord. Like he can, you can translate it lorded. So he's saying sin, uh, just as sin lorded in death, so also grace might lord through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what he's saying. Is now that, you're, now that you are becoming the righteousness of God, now that God's righteousness in Jesus is acting, grace is your lord. And again, Paul will sometimes use these words synonymously with Jesus interchangeably. But what he's saying is grace now runs your life. Which means every weakness you have invites more of it. Every need that you have invites more of it. Every sin that you struggle with that you can't overcome invites more of it. 
every part of you that feels shameful and is, hides from others invites more of it. Church, could we be a church that invites more of God because of our sinfulness? Right? I don't want to excuse bad behavior. I don't want to do that. Paul doesn't do that. But the way that we become a church where we become the righteousness of God, where we invite grace to abound even more, we invite Jesus to abound even more, is by admitting our weakness and our need for it. Let me pray for us as we close today. Oh, Father, um, we love you, and we need you. Father, the words that um, we see here in Romans are radical. They're counterintuitive. They're paradoxical. They don't make sense to us. We spend our whole lives trying to justify ourselves, try to justify and prove our worth to others. So this idea that we are wor we're worthwhile to you because of your righteousness, your loving power to set us right, uh, is counterintuitive to us. We don't understand this, Father. I don't understand this. So, Father, would you help us? Would you grab a hold of our hearts and the places that we are most resistant to it? Um, would you break down those fears and those barriers? Father, where we have a sense of um, this isn't right, we can't trust this, would you help us with that fear? Perfect love casts out fear. Um, we need your perfect love to cast out our fear that we are unacceptable to you because we can't measure up to you. We need to be reassured by grace, by your grace, that your righteousness in Christ has been setting us right, completely independent of any action we'll ever choose on our own. Father, thank you for freeing us. Thank you for cutting off the things that control us. We need you, Lord. Would you show us how to love one another? We don't always do that well. Would you show us how to love you? We don't know how to do that either. We need your help. Have mercy. We pray these things in your name. Amen.